This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Tonight, the Electoral Commission is investigating after rogue signs were put up labelling independent candidates Greens. Also, the rising costs of building materials and a shortage of tradies is complicating the flood recovery in southeast Queensland. Yeah, getting the builders to come out and actually do various quotes has been really hard, actually. That, that's probably been the hardest thing. Um, Which is they're so busy. Yeah, they're flat out, so and they were flat out before, before the event. And how the war in Ukraine is forcing some airlines to fly further north, presenting a radiation issue that needs to be managed. So when you fly high in any part of the world, aircrew and passengers are exposed more to gamma radiation because you've got less atmosphere to protect you. And in the polar, the polar flying is actually greater. First tonight to the election campaign and the role independence may play in the next federal parliament is the subject of much speculation among commentators and voters, particularly after the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said today he disagrees with Scott Morrison's view they'll bring chaos to the House. Unauthorised core flutes have appeared in New South Wales today, falsely labelling a couple of high-profile independents as members of the Greens. No one has claimed responsibility and the Electoral Commission is investigating, as Isabel Rowe reports. Campaign volunteers in the electorates of Hughes, Warringah and McKellar in New South Wales have spent the morning ripping down some mystery call flutes. My volunteers are very upset and I had my son ringing me while I was chatting to people saying, but mum, they're lying, they're lying. Independent candidate for McKellar, Sophie Scomps, is one of at least three female independents who woke to find their electorates littered with unauthorised campaign call flutes. The signs are basically use my face and the uh, branding, but have a big Greens logo stuck on it as well and say independent and Greens for McKellar. So it's designed to mislead and be deceptive to the people who live here in McKellar. Political advertisements can contain falsehoods, but they do need to identify who's behind them. And these signs don't have that. ACT Senate candidate David Pocock has been subject to a similar core flute campaign, showing him with a Greens shirt on. Well, it's deliberately misleading. You know, it's the Greens logo. I care about the environment that doesn't make me a green. Conservative lobby group Advance Australia took responsibility for that campaign and included its logo on the signs as per the rules. In a statement to PM, it says it's not responsible for the mystery core flutes found today. The Liberal Party has also denied any involvement and the Australian Electoral Commission is calling for witnesses to help catch the culprit. Sophie Scomps says the dirty tactics are regrettable. Isn't this crazy? So while I'm out here trying to bring people back into their democracy, there's another group sneaking around in the dark of night who are putting up misleading signs. Independent candidates are an increasing headache for the coalition in inner city seats. Former Liberal Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has stirred up the party's current leadership, hinting that independents are stepping in where his party has failed. What the Teal candidates are doing is they are, if you like, responding to the fact that many uh, traditional or habitual large L Liberal Party voters 
feel that the Liberal Party no longer speaks to their values. I'm not urging people to vote for any candidate, Teal or otherwise. I'm simply making some observations. The comments have riled the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who has spent the campaign trying to convince disillusioned voters that a hung parliament will be dysfunctional. I don't share his view. What my view is, is I've just explained to you, and that is the chaos of a parliament driven by the daily musings of independents who haven't had the experience to deal with the serious security and economic challenges our country faces, that is going to hurt people's incomes. It's going to hurt people's jobs. Labor leader Anthony Albanese was also asked whether he'd work with independents in a hung parliament. But he dodged the question and gave this answer. So many people who are traditional Liberals feel the modern Liberal Party under Scott Morrison doesn't represent them. And and they're walking away uh, from the Liberal Party. Uh, The Liberal Party are divided. They're a rabble. Uh, They're led by a man who a whole lot of his own front bench don't want him anywhere near their seat and don't want to appear with him in public. Anthony Albanese has been subject to another barrage from his travelling media pack, facing a second day of questions about whether he's up to the job after failing to recall his six-point policy on the NDIS without referring to notes. And let me tell you, let me tell you what the NDIS is about. It's not about gotcha questions. What it's about is providing what what hang on you 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 had you had your opportunity you had your opportunity and now it's my turn to answer. So just wait. And then there was this query suggesting a peculiar juxtaposition. Do you think that line of questioning was unfair? And if so, how are you going to stand up to Xi Jinping if you can't stand up to us? People are entitled to ask uh, ask questions. The Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, ending that report from Isabel Rowe. Both major parties are under pressure in some of their traditional strongholds this election. The Liberals are fighting to hold on to blue ribbon seats in Melbourne and Sydney, where independent candidates are running on climate change and integrity platforms. Labor is being challenged in the outer suburbs and coal-rich areas, which swung against it in 2019. Labor's margin in the New South Wales seat of Hunter was cut from 12.5% to just 3% at the last election, with voters turning to One Nation. But this time it faces a challenge from the Nationals, as Nell Whitehead reports. The federal seat of Hunter is red through and through. It's been held by Labour for more than a century. But in the past few years, voters have been turning away from the party. I'm traditionally a Labor voter. I've always been a Labor voter. But I'm sitting there now looking at it and thinking, well, who's going to support us locally? This man runs a business in Musselbrook, a town surrounded by coal mines. He wanted to speak anonymously. My my thoughts are I think Labor is doing very little for the seat. Its focus is towards the city and, uh, and the coast. Uh, and there's no focus on the um, in, in the regional area. Labor's gone to a to more of a green philosophy, and uh, they've basically abandoned this this upper Hunter area. Hunter has been held by Joel Fitzgibbon, a Labor MP, for 26 years, but he's retiring after a massive swing against him in the last election. 
He complains that excessive progressives have kept Labour out of government. But it's not just climate policy that's turning voters off. Brett Woodward is a hunter winemaker. This, the seats here at all three levels have been so stagnant and stable for such a long time that we just get ignored. People in this area, they don't have a voice because they just vote the same way they've always done for generations. And nothing's happened for so long at all levels. And it's so bleedingly obvious here. Like We are a prime example of a seat where we just get forgotten about. Labour's new candidate is Dan Rapacoli, a former coal miner and pistol-shooting Olympian who promises to put Hunter back on the map. He faces a challenge from a new Nationals candidate, James Thompson. The federal government has pledged $600 million for a new Hunter gas-fired power station in Curry. In January, Labour lent its support to that plant, provided it could be powered by green hydrogen by 2030. Both candidates in the seat of Hunter talk about their region's potential as a clean energy hub. But voters that we spoke to still worry about what's coming next people get really worked up because they're emotional about it. They're scared. They're scared that they're going to lose their job and they're scared that their kids won't have a job to go to because they came from three or four generations of, you know, digging black stuff out of the ground um, and that's what's put food on the table and plasma screens in their um, living room and boats on the back of their cars. This voter asked to remain anonymous. I do think that um, they need to do a bit more to, uh, I guess, stabilise uh, people's positions and livelihoods. You know, if the, if the coal mines do leave eventually, um, what will happen to the livelihood? And that might not be happening for another 20, 30 years, but it is a discussion that needs to be had. A new report from a left-leaning not-for-profit, The Next Economy, argues there's a big shift in public sentiment in mining communities. It says they've accepted that an energy transition is inevitable and now need an honest discussion from governments about how it's going to happen. Warwick Jordan agrees. He coordinates the Hunter Jobs Alliance, a community organisation. We've seen a, a really big shift over the last 12, 18 months where there now is a serious recognition that there's a, a change uh, occurring in our economy. At the same time, there's some opportunities that we need to act to grab hold of. What's really required is, is the leadership about practically how we respond to that. And the local community, the business community are getting to grips with that. But we do need to see more from, from a government level. He says his region needs training, an authority to coordinate its energy transition and public investment to support new industries. The type of new industry sectors that we're looking at, whether that's hydrogen or renewable manufacturing components or, or what have you, are highly competitive. And so you need that, that public investment, that infrastructure build to make sure that this region uh, gets access to those opportunities and gets on the front foot. Those are things the hunter will be fighting for, whatever the outcome, on May 21st. Neil Whitehead reporting. To southeast Queensland now, where flood-affected communities are struggling to fix their damaged homes because of the shortage and high price of building materials and the lack of tradies available to do the work. Our reporter, John Daly, visited Grantham to see how the locals are going. Just watch This is Neville, and, hey, this, Neville. Is, and this is Roger. John. This is John. Okay. G'day, John. Karen Goodwin's recently flooded house in the small Queensland community of Grantham 
is finally starting to feel like home again. What was it when you cut off? Gosh, it looks a bit different to a couple of months ago, doesn't it? It certainly does, doesn't it? Karen Goodwin's home was one of many trashed by the floods in late February. She's a single woman on a disability pension, so finding the money for repairs would have been tough if it wasn't for the kindness of strangers. One of the gentlemen and his wife had a, a queen-size bed that they wanted to donate to me. Roger brought Neville with him to, don- to set the bed up. And Neville was looking around and he's a retired builder and he says, oh, I should have bought my tools. I can just see so many things I can do. And that was that. He was back the next day to measure up and... and Tell me what I had to buy and... What would you do if you didn't have, uh, have old Neville? Oh, if I didn't have Neville, I think we'd still be in the same position I was two months ago when you came to visit. Yeah. But, um, no, he's been amazing. He's an angel without his wings. Even if Karen Goodwin had the cash spare for a tradie, she probably wouldn't get one at the moment. Neville says the building sector is flat out. Yeah, there's no builders. Yeah. I was offered a job the other day and I said no. Oh, right. Because <laughs> I'm retired. So why are, you here? why are you here helping Karen out? Because of, we bought the bed and I felt she needed a hand to help out. You've got to help fellow men. That's what I've been spared my life, yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I've got melanomas here. Mm. I've got one on my brain. And I've had four years spare. So that's why I'm here helping, yeah. Builders are very busy at the moment, keeping up with new builds stimulated by government programs and housing demand. That's making things very hard for flood victims trying to rebuild. Scott Barton owns Grantham's fuel station and just getting quotes for repairs has been nearly impossible. Yeah, getting the builders to come out and actually do various quotes has been really hard, actually. That, that's probably been the hardest thing. We just because they're so busy. Yeah, they're flat out, so and it, they were flat out before, before the event. So you're, you're largely relying on your own labour and the help of your neighbours? Pretty much, yeah. If, it, if We're lucky that... Um, like I'm a tradie and I've got a lot of mates in the industry and all that sort of stuff. Scott Barton is today preparing for more heavy rain coming to Queensland next week. That's it, yeah. So we've got all new pallet racking to go up up there. So everything's going up in the air. We're going to be at least um, a metre off the ground this time. Obviously it went higher than that last. It went to five foot. But, um, yeah, we're hoping, fingers crossed, it doesn't get to that again. Yeah. So, yeah. Challenges with insurance are also making matters worse for recovering businesses and residents in Grantham. Two months on and Scott Barton is still waiting on approvals from his insurer. Still waiting on the insurance and even an answer from the insurance. Um, Still could be weeks or months away yet. So um, we can't apply for any grants or anything at the moment because we can't until we know what's going on with the insurance. So we're just in limbo at the moment. It's a similar story for many in flood-affected areas of south-east Queensland. Lockyer Valley Mayor Tanya Milligan says rising costs of labour and building materials are making for a slow and tedious recovery. The shortage is real. The shortage was there even before this last event. You know, we already knew that people were struggling. Everyone was keen to try and get homes built. And now you've got the first home um, buyers as well. And everything's at a a premium price. So it it just makes it exceptionally difficult for for anyone and, and really difficult for people's recovery because they are in limbo. 
Lockyer Valley Mayor Tanya Milligan ending that report from John Daly. This is PM, I'm Samantha Donovan and you can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, Facebook whistleblowers suggest the social media giant deliberately blocked pages beyond just news during tense negotiations with the Australian Government. On PM yesterday, we heard from Melbourne emergency physician Stephen Parnas, who's taking a break from work for three months to recover from the physical and mental strain of being on the front line during the pandemic. It really uh, is a struggle and a burden when I see people who've been waiting for six or more hours in circumstances where I would have preferred they'd be seen within 20 minutes. And that's hard. That's, that's a, it's called moral injury and I'm experiencing it. Well, Dr Parnas is certainly not the only one feeling the stress of a heavy workload. As Isabel Masali reports, nurses and doctors in emergency departments across the country are again warning they're barely coping. Dr Viom Sharma wanted to know how his colleagues in Melbourne's emergency departments were coping. So he posed the question on social media but didn't expect such a huge response. The response was unbelievable. I was blown away by the uh, things that people were writing on my Twitter and also direct messaging me in private because they didn't want to reveal their identity and that of the hospital. And uh, initially I thought that it's maybe just a couple of emergency departments around Melbourne that are doing poorly. Well, I discovered that not only is it all the emergency departments in Melbourne, and not only is it all the emergency departments in Victoria, but actually this is a a problem that's occurring across the nation as well. Among the stories that concerned the Melbourne GP most was this. People who are so sick that they have breathing tubes down their throats, people who are waiting on stretches for so long that they are getting pressure sores, that's their skin breaking down and tearing because they've been in one position for so long. If you notice, you go to sleep in bed, you don't wake up with pressure sores the next day. So that should give you an indication of just how long these people are stuck there. And he says some health workers told him this is the worst they've experienced since the pandemic began. The reason for that is that we're getting a huge number of uh, patients who not only have COVID, but also uh, staff who are being impacted by furloughs and also, frankly, staff who've been completely burnt out. Uh, because this has completely exhausted everyone. Uh, The workforce is tired, uh, anxious and scared. In Western Australia, where the state is experiencing its first COVID wave, hospital staff are also struggling to cope. The Nurses' Federation wants masks and other restrictions to be returned when COVID hospitalisations reach 300. Today, that figure reached 282, a new record for WA. Mark Olson is the state secretary. We've got a system that's barely coping, and, and anyone will tell you that. Go and find a nurse or a midwife or a carer or a doctor to go and talk to you, and I'll tell you the system's barely coping. It's only coping because we're still doing record levels of overtime and double shifts. We're still denying nurses access to their leave, as we have been doing now for a couple of years. Um, that's going to implode at some point. At some point, we're going to have to pay for this. If you want your elective surgery to resume, if you want your hospital system to be there, unless you want ambulance ramping at six, seven, eight thousand hours a month, then we do need to start looking at reintroducing some restrictions once we get to 300 hospitalisations. Premier Mark McGowan maintains the state's hospitalisation and ICU rates are lower than predicted and was today applauding the state for reaching a third dose vaccination rate of 80%. 
Nationwide, Peter Collignon says the vaccination rate and the amount of recent COVID cases means the winter surge shouldn't be as bad as expected. He's a professor of infectious diseases at the Australian National University. Well, I think the winter peak won't be as bad as I was originally expecting because we've had so many people infected with COVID itself over the last six months. So normally you wouldn't expect a lot of respiratory virus transmission in summer and and autumn, but that has occurred. And that probably means there's a lot more immunity in the community in a lot more people than otherwise normally would happen by the beginning of winter. So my presumption is we won't see as many cases this winter as our original thoughts and modelling had suggested. Are we prepared for this winter? Well, I think we're prepared. Um, Are we prepared enough? I don't think anybody can answer that um, because we can't really necessarily give an exact number to how many people might need our bed. Look, you know, yes, there'll be demands, I think, this winter on our beds. It'll be more than what we're probably seeing now. But will we be overwhelmed? Probably not because of our very effective uptake and distribution of vaccines in Australia with vaccines that are highly effective against all strains of stopping you dying and getting seriously ill. Professor Peter Collignon from the Australian National University, Isabel Masali, reporting. The social media giant Facebook is under fire again today with whistleblowers now claiming the company deliberately blocked the pages of Australian emergency services and charity groups in February last year. The move came during heated negotiations with the federal government over plans to make social media giants pay for news content. But Facebook not only blocked the pages of news outlets but those of other groups that had nothing to do with news reporting. Facebook claimed those groups were blocked by accident, but now it's alleged they did it on purpose to strengthen their bargaining position. David Sparks has more. Negotiations between the social media companies, the government and traditional news companies were already tense in February last year. But on the 17th, that escalated quickly when Facebook decided to make a point by blocking the pages of those news outlets. Trouble was, in doing so, they also took down the pages of many other organisations, like a Hobart women's shelter, as well as health departments and emergency services, which used the platform to deliver important messages to the public. Facebook insisted it had never meant to block those additional sites and it happened by accident when they were blocking the news sites. But now, in a story by the Wall Street Journal, whistleblowers allege it was a very deliberate tactic. Well, amazed, because if what's being said is true, and I've no reason to think it's not, it firstly says that Facebook lied to the Australian people and the Australian government. Professor Rod Sims is now with the Crawford School of Policy at the ANU, but at the time he was the chair of the ACCC and involved in the negotiations. And secondly, it also says they deliberately put Australian lives at risk because by taking down sites that affected bushfire warnings, health warnings that were in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you had to know that vital information wasn't going to get to where it was expected to get to, Uh, and that was going to put lives at risk. So I find that uh, uh, really quite appalling. This scandal has its roots in a complicated dispute, with traditional news outlets fighting for their financial lives as advertisers switched to Facebook and Google. The government and the ACCC began negotiations to create a system where those companies would pay the news outlets for using their content. Facebook's move was seen as a threat that there could be a future with no news on its platform. Not long after, legislation was passed, turning the proposed code into law. So, does Rod Sims believe Facebook's blocking tactics influenced the negotiations? 
No, I don't. There were three broad changes made, and they were things that we could have conceded uh, even without pulling a stunt like this. So uh, in the end, the code achieved its objective. Um, All the code was aiming to do was to get commercial deals between media companies and the platforms, and we've got that, over $200 million a year flowing to large, medium, and many small media businesses. So the code's been a complete success. Facebook told the Wall Street Journal it stands by its original claim that blocking the pages of additional groups was accidental. It says any suggestion to the contrary is categorically and obviously false. But Associate Professor Rob Nichols from the University of New South Wales Business School says today's allegations are disturbing. There was a specific denial by Facebook back in February last year that this was anything other than an accident. And indeed, there was a local apology from Facebook saying it was an accident. On the other hand, you've got an organisation which has some of the smartest software engineers in the world suddenly accidentally blocking access to key resources like state health systems or 1-800-RESPECT. So either Facebook at the time did things very, very badly or, and this now looks a bit more suspect in the, in the light of the whistleblower complaint, perhaps something really did go wrong here. Really did go wrong as in it wasn't accidental, it, it may have the, been deliberate. It, it may have been deliberate. And if it was a stuff-up, then maybe you should show to us it really was a stuff-up. And if you're not prepared to do that, well, who do we believe? Rob Nicholl from the Business School at the University of New South Wales, speaking there with David Sparks. The European Union's aviation safety regulator is warning that passenger jets may be at heightened risk because of Russia's war in Ukraine. It says civil aircraft could be mistaken for warplanes and airlines could be struck by cyber attacks. As a result, some carriers are rerouting their trips closer to the North Pole. So what will the detours mean for ticket prices and the health of crew and passengers? Carly Williams takes a look. A chance of mid-air collisions in busy neutral corridors, cyber attacks and passenger jets being misidentified as warplanes. No, this isn't a Hollywood movie. Due to the war in Ukraine, these are risks the European Union's Aviation Safety Agency, or EASA, is flagging with pilots and airlines. Captain Marcus Diamond is Safety and Technical Manager for the Australian Federation of Air Pilots and has flown jets over Europe. Every company will have done its own risk analysis and and country will have done its own risk analysis on how close they'll fly to these places. As we know, there's been times when aircraft have strayed in military areas and or close to and they've been accidentally shot down. Russia and the EU have closed their airspace to each other's planes, forcing them into long detours, which is a headache for pilots. It puts a little bit more complexity to the decision-making and it can actually affect things like flight and duty time, your ability to have alternate destinations for weather or malfunctions. Reroutes mean pilots are dealing with flight paths they are less familiar with and some airlines are rerouting their trips closer to the North Pole, an area more exposed to cosmic radiation, which comes from space. So when you fly high in any part of the world, 
aircrew and passengers are exposed more to gamma radiation because you've got less atmosphere to protect you. And in the polar, the polar flying is actually greater. Your exposure must be predicted and in some cases measured so that we don't go above unsafe doses of cosmic radiation. Flights through neutral airspace have significantly increased. The European Union's aviation safety regulator says this means a bigger workload for air traffic controllers and that, quote, unidentified aircraft using these routes can conflict with other traffic. Dr Michael Baird is an aviation marketing expert at Curtin University. He says Australians have very little to worry about. Increased flights is still not pre-COVID levels. I mean, pre-COVID 2019, there were 42 million flights around the world or approximately 175,000 flights a day. Longer flight times does mean more fuel burn, though, so expect more expensive flights. Cyber attacks have also been flagged as a risk. Dr Lennon Chang is a senior lecturer in criminology at Monash University. He explains what a cyber attack on an airline might look like. So they can shut down all the machines and computers and internet at the airport, which, you know, when they are doing the air traffic uh, control, they might make a mess of the uh, landing and departure. In 2014, Malaysian Airlines passenger jet MH17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine on its way from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur. It killed 298 people. Dutch authorities blame Russia for allegedly supplying the fatal missile to separatists. Dr Michael Baird says this tragedy is top of mind for airlines, especially during the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. There were significant dips in 9-11 and the global financial crisis, uh, but no significant dips because of either of the Malaysian Airlines disasters, the the missing aeroplane or the MH17. Dr Michael Baird, an aviation marketing expert at Curtin University. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Scott Johnston. I'm Samantha Donovan. The PM team with Linda Mottram will be back on Monday evening. And you can join Linda at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning for this week, looking at inflation, the cost of health care and the threat of an abortion ban in the United States. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.